Welcome to Leveling the Playing Field, a podcast featuring women who work in sport. My name is Bobby Sue Doyle Hazard. I'm your host, and this is one of my favorite episodes so far. It's number 20, and it is with one of my idols, Katherine Switzer. Now, you may not recognize her name, but you will most definitely remember a picture of her. Think of a black and white photo you've seen of a woman running the Boston Marathon with a bib number, number 261, a man trying to pull her off the course, and another man blocking the first man. That is Katherine Switzer. She was the first woman to run and complete the Boston Marathon as a registered participant with a bib number. Catherine took her celebrity and worked her entire life towards the empowerment of women. First, she fought for the Boston Marathon to allow women to officially compete. It took five years for that, and then every other race followed. She then won the New York City Marathon. She started the Avon Women's Marathon Series, which led to the International Olympic Committee to finally bringing the Women's Marathon to the Olympics. In 2011, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame for creating a social revolution by empowering women around the world through running. Her bib number was 261. And that number has become a symbol of fearlessness. Once she realized the power that that bib number had on other women, she created an organization called 261 Fearless. And she uses that nonprofit organization to empower and encourage women to inspire each other towards a positive sense of self and fearlessness by using running to break down barriers. In 2017, Catherine ran the Boston Marathon wearing that same bib number. It was her 50th anniversary of her initial race. And the Boston Athletic Association retired her bib number. And from what I understand, it is the only bib number that has ever been retired. I clearly fangirl way hard. Um, Catherine has been a an idol of mine since I ran in high school, and um, I have we have such a great conversation. She is this woman who, by the way, at the age of seventy last year when she ran the Boston Marathon again, um, could kick my ass in running right now, and. Um, it's just such a good conversation. She talks about some of the struggles, but she really talks about what she's doing now. And um, she also has a great book called Marathon Woman that I suggest you all get. And it's a memoir of, you know, her time leading up to the Boston Marathon and things that she's done after. And it's a really great history of how running has helped women um, uh, reach different levels of success than they had before. So... While this is fairly running heavy, um, we do talk a, a bit about the business of sports and um, and just the way that sports helps women um, in finding their true selves and realizing that they can do anything. I hope you enjoy the episode. Prior to getting to that, I have a couple of other quick little announcements. Um I'm going to be at a couple of different events, uh, four actually between now and uh, the end of March. So if you happen to be around any of these locations, come by and say hi. On the 23rd of February, I'll be at Michigan State University's College of Law for their Sports Law Symposium. On February 24th, I will be in Amherst um, at the UMass Women of Eisenberg Conference. March 23rd, I am at USF Women Who Ignite Sport, uh, Student Engagement excuse me, Symposium. And then on March 26th, I will be at Stetson Law's Gulfport campus uh, for a panel during their Women's Week. And now on to the interview. Hi, Catherine. Hey, Bobby Sue. How are you? I am doing phenomenally well. How are you? I'm really great. And we're talking from New Zealand, which is really extra great because it is high summer here. Oh, my and gosh. It's absolutely wonderful. And I am very, very lucky not to be in my normal home in the Hudson Valley of New York, where it's cold and wet. Um, but here where I can really get some good training in for upcoming races. Yeah, that's I. When I learned that you spent half of your year in New Zealand, I'm not going to lie. I got a little bit jealous. I mean, Tampa is nice, but. It's not New Zealand nice right now. 
Yeah. Well, but you know, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. And there's absolutely no question. I'm extremely lucky to live in two incredible environments, especially since as a runner, I I really do all my training outside. I want to stay outside. I don't want to be on treadmills. I want to be in safe, you know, pure environments as much as possible. So New Zealand and the Hudson Valley really, really have offered me that. But there's always downsides. I mean, you're kind of in a constant state of jet lag, right. and uh, your major house, your major household expense is not your kids' college education; it's, it's airfare. Yeah, <laughs> so. that's true. You have to get really um, used to really, really long air airplane rides. <laughs> that's right. But fortunately, you know, it's it gets it's good on the other side, and and it's a, a wonderful, interesting life, and a privilege to be a part of two two different uh, cultures, really. And Opposite seasons, opposite sides of the world is very interesting. What um, what races are you training for currently? Well, it's interesting. I think everybody listening, at least I hope they do, uh, know that I ran the Boston Marathon last year um, again at age 70 for my 50th anniversary. Um, so it was such a breakthrough performance for me. You know, I wasn't there to prove anything about running. What I was there to prove was um, what profound changes have happened in women's running. And, and we'll, we'll talk about that because um, it's the social revolution aspect of, of running that fascinates me the most. But to run it again 50 years later um, was astonishing to me. And I found out I was in better condition than I ever could have imagined. And so, and so a, a fit of hypoxia or delusion that often <laughs> comes when you run. <laughs> I, I decided to run the New York City Marathon as well, which I hadn't done in uh, 43 years. So, wow. um, I, so I ran the New York city marathon again and again, in another state of delusion, I said, Hey girl, you're going strong. Um, how about running the London marathon next April? So <laughs> next April, tw- <laughs> April 22nd, I'm going to be pounding through the streets of London. And there's always a reason for this, Bobby Sue. Um, in, in London, for instance, what, what is fascinating to me is I had a big part in making that marathon happen in the first place. And I know probably most of the listeners are, are too young to imagine this, but um, the London Marathon was only founded in 1981. And in 1980, I'd organized uh, the Avon International Marathon for women only. So we had a women's only marathon in the downtown streets of London. It was the first time... London streets ever in history were closed for a sports event. They only closed it for the queen for ceremonials and, um, you know, or, or, or accidents or something. But at any rate, this is the first time for a marathon. And they had been contemplating the idea of doing a big city marathon on the, on the scale of the New York City Marathon, which had been going pretty much for 10 years by that time. And they sort of used my race as a design model and uh, a test run because we only had 125 women. But it was a profound event because by closing downtown London streets, we not only captured the public imagination. I mean, we got incredible world publicity Mm -hmm. and it was important because we were making the big drive to get the women's marathon into the Olympic Games at that time. And in London, we had five continents and 27 countries, which exceeded the requirement for the International Olympic Committee. And, and and it was really, when we had that event, it was one of the happiest days of my life because I, I knew we were going to get the women's marathon into the Olympic Games, which had been um, a lifetime goal of mine. And um, I'd been back to London since then many times for the London Marathon as a journalist or to be with friends, but I'd never run it. And it was one of those things that kind of, you know, is in the back of your mind and you say, oh, I got to do that. I got to do it. And then I said this year, I said, oh man, if not now, when, you know, I'm 71 years age. Oh, God, I better go. <laughs> After last week's episode of Shannon Miller, you all know how important sleep is to me. I mean, it's seriously one of my favorite things. And that's why I want to tell you about our friends over at Casper. Casper is a sleep brand that makes expertly designed products to help you get your best rest one night at a time. And we spend a third of our lives sleeping. So you should really be comfortable while you're doing that, right? The original Casper mattress combines multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with the right amounts of both sink and bounce. And we all like to bounce on our beds sometimes, right? 
<laughs> they offer two mattresses, the Wave and the Essential. The Wave features a patent-pending premium support system to mirror the natural shape of your body. And the Essential has a streamlined design at a price that won't keep you up at night. One of the best things about Casper is not just the affordable prices, but that they have hassle-free returns if you're not completely satisfied. You can be sure of your purchase with the Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. The other thing I love about Casper is that it's delivered right to your door in a small, how do they do that, sized box. For me, as a single person who uh, has only cats to not help, (laughs) um, it's great to be able to get that delivered right to the door and to not have to spend a ton of hours at a mattress store figuring out the difference between one and the next. With over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars across Casper, Amazon, and Google, Casper is becoming the internet's favorite mattress. For my listeners, you get a special deal. You get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash LTPF and using the promo code LTPF at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash LTPF and using LTPF as the promo code at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Make sure you get your best night's sleep with Casper. No, I think that's phenomenal. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a good way to celebrate what you've accomplished when you ran Boston last year. I mean, I, so I'm one of those people who watches the Boston marathon online and which like, makes everybody around me think I'm insane, but, um, you know, it, watching the reporting and, and seeing, um, you finish, you know, just like made me really teary eyed and you, the thing that you, were initially known for is for being the first woman to finish that marathon with a bib and the iconic photo that was taken. But I don't think a lot of people realize that you trained for it because your coach said that you you couldn't do it basically. <laughs> yes, it's, it is interesting. So many people think, of course, you know, I went to Boston in 1967 to make a political statement you know, it was the beginning, not the beginning, but it was the early years of the women's liberation movement. And they thought I was making a statement, you know, for, for women's uh, equality and liberation. I mean, I was, I got to tell you, I was a 20 year old student at Syracuse <laughs> University who wanted to run. And um, I, you know, we didn't have a, we didn't have track teams in those days. You know, this is way pre-Title IX. Right. And, um, you know, even Syracuse's powerhouse university for sports didn't have any women's intercollegiate sports teams. And I mean, I was just sort of devastated because I all through high school played field hockey and lacrosse. And, and I thought, oh my gosh, you know, now I am, I'm at big time and there is no big time. <laughs> so I started running with the men's cross country team unofficially. Um, they wouldn't let me run officially on the team, but the guys were wonderful. And the, a volunteer coach there was an ex-marathoner and he was regaling me was stories about his marathon exploits and he had run the Boston marathon 15 times. And, you know, like a kid sitting around listening to fairy tales um, and, and, and fireside chats, I fell in love with the concept of running this great distance. And I told him that I wanted to run it. And he said, well, you know, it was impossible. A woman can't run it. It's too, too hard and too, too long. Women don't have that kind of capability. And actually he was telling me this one night when we were, in the running together uh, in a blizzard in Syracuse, New York, in the dark, and um, and it was ten miles. And I said, "Look, are you kidding? We're doing the impossible right now. Why don't you think I can run a marathon?" Oh, did we argue? And um, I told him that the year before, a woman had uh, first of all in history, several women had run the marathon right. distance, um, you know, unofficially. Uh, he didn't believe that. Um, I reminded him that I came from pioneering of stock. But, you know, my my <laughs> ancestors arrived in the Americas in 1723. They were the women were not weak and feeble. They were homesteaders, pioneers. Didn't listen. Um, then I told him that Roberta Gibb had jumped out of the bushes the year before at Boston and run the race. And at that point, he absolutely exploded. Um, you know, claiming it was fake news. <laughs> And I 
<laughs> and I said, I said, and you are crazy. You know, you've got to believe a woman someplace can do it. And he said, well, if a woman, any woman could, you could, but you'd have to prove it to me. So in practice, uh, we worked together. You know, he was, he stuck with me. And in practice, one day we ran our 26 miles. And instead of 26, I thought, you know, I said, hey, I think this is short. Let's run another five. We ran 31 miles and he passed out at the end of the workout. <laughs> and that's the evangelistic point, you know, he, yeah. he then was so convinced and I felt great. And we realized that the longer I went, the better I got. So he was then a total evangelist for, for me and for, for possibly women um, and helped me sign up for the race. But he was the one who I, and he's the one who officially um, insisted, ins- insisted that I officially register. He said, you're, you know, you're a card carrying member of the athletic federation. You have to sign up for the race. So um, when I signed up for it, I signed my name, KV Switzer. And obviously when the um, application went into the officials in Boston, they assumed it was from a guy and, and issued me the number. And I registered with some of my teammates. So we, we went in as a club. And, and Arnie, the morning of the race, that was also snowing and sleeting that morning, uh, picked up our, all our bibs and came out to the car and we pinned them on and went and did our warm up. And when we were warming up, all the guys knew I was a girl. And it wasn't until a mile and a half into um, the race that the race official who went by on the press truck saw me and just exploded in anger and rage thinking, you know, there was a woman in his race making a mockery of his race. And he, he just jumped off the bus and went after me um, and attacked me and tried to pull off those bib numbers and throw me out of the race. So it, it was, it was a terrible moment because my coach was screaming at him and, and, and everybody was in a melee and my boyfriend who was running beside me, threw a cross body block into the official and sent him <laughs> out of the race instead. Yeah. And look at Bobby Sue. Cause she's laughing. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Everybody laughs. It's so funny in the retelling all these years later, but um, I'm sure it was, sure it was terrifying. Yeah, it was, it was, it was terrifying. And, and, you know, here I was a girl, I was conspicuous enough. I just wanted to run. The guys were all wonderful, but boy, did I feel, um, Oh, I was so embarrassed. I was humiliated. Yeah. I felt like I had done something wrong. You know, girls always. Well, we feel shame so much. <laughs> you know, we do. We we make it, you know, and this part of the whole problem that, that we're going through right now with this whole sexual contentiousness is that, that women, instead of getting angry, we feel shamed by things. Mm-hmm. And um, I, and I, um, I would, but I, but I made the determination at that point and how I did this, I often wonder how I made the determination that I had to finish the race. I had to do it because I knew if I dropped out, which is exactly what I felt like doing, um, cause I was so ashamed and scared, mm-hmm. um, that, that everybody would say she was just there to be a clown. You know, she wasn't for real. And I knew that would set women back. So I had to finish the race. And that was, you know, I, uh, really one of the hardest decisions I had to make in my life. It came quickly. Um, but but the determination to stick it out for the rest of the race, while it was not only cold and miserable and a marathon being tough enough, it was um, it was I was paranoid. You know, I was really frightened that he was he was going to send the police out after me. And apparently he went ahead and tried to have people pull me out of the race, um, which didn't happen. But I didn't know that. Uh, so so to carry on for another 24 miles feeling with that kind of pressure was really, really tough. Um, and I think it was probably one of the hardest things I ever did, but I knew when I finished that, that after that, you know, nothing would probably be quite that difficult. And it, and it turned out to be a very, very big life lesson, a wonderful life lesson that has served me for years and years. You know, amazing. What always, um, what I always found interesting about your story and, and really touched me was the fact that you know, you didn't go into this as an activist and um, but you came out one and, you know, the fact that you continued to fight for women to have equality of distance um, in racing. And I mean, what did it take another five years before women were officially allowed to enter the Boston Marathon? 
Yes, it was. It was five years of, of, of you know, not only proving ourselves as athletes, but doing the legislative work. Right. Um, you know, y- you can you can go out and you can protest something and you can you can throw lawsuits at people and all that kind of stuff. But the most effective thing is to go in and make positive change and, and get your community um, proving taking the high road and showing that we could do it. And that's what we did. Um, and then when the Boston Marathon accepted us, that was effectively like opening the floodgates because women themselves then felt free to be athletes. And the world was suddenly recognizing, well, if Boston recognizes them, then then maybe, you know, we've got to change our attitudes as well. It's a whole other thing then to go on to try to get the marathon into the Olympic Games. But that was then the, the my next big goal. Uh, and I would say our next big goal, goal, because by this time there were a lot of women who really knew that if if we could only get women's running on the world stage on an on an equal playing field then that's when real progress would happen you know you know yourself as a woman that sometimes women are their own worst enemies because they are given a set these limitations and they can't see beyond them because they have no opportunity to experience anything else Mm -hmm. if you can experience it or dream it um especially if you can experience it then you know you can do it. And and that is why, you know, I really began devoting my life. Um, you know, I was training hard. I was working. I was trying to earn a living. I was trying to put the hub through grad school, <laughs> all those things we have to do. Um, but really what I want, I essentially try to devote my life to is creating the opportunities for other women. And that came in the form of creating events um, and and getting them to come out to something that was, welcoming, non-intimidating, and and um, and empowering to them. So when I organized women's running events, and I um, got a big sponsor in Avon and went around the world to 27 countries, five continents, a million women, 400 races, um, those women then, when they realized that this was for them, welcoming, non-intimidating, uh, have fun, not competitive necessarily, they came out in their thousands and thousands, and then they became the database to present to the International Olympic Committee. So no longer could they refute the fact that, you know, say that women couldn't run or wouldn't run or didn't like to run or that it was injurious to us, you know, <laughs> you know, mostly that we weren't going to be able to have children. Plenty right. of these women. Well, had that's always the case. That's always the problem. <laughs> oh, they always love that one. Yeah. You know, They're, the poor, the poor um, uh, ski jumpers. I think even got that last year. You know, you can't yeah. be in the Olympics. You know, if you ski jump, your uterus is going to get displaced. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, let me worry about my own uterus, okay? Like, just. I, well, you know, the, the reality is, is that, I mean, if anybody is vulnerable, it's guys. Uh, we're, we're pretty well protected there. But anyway, <laughs> um, we, we, we presented all this evidence to the uh, International Olympic Committee, you know, in reports and in demonstration. And, um, and then they voted the women's marathon into the Olympic Games in 1981. So for 84, which was honest to God, um, you say you know, it took us so long. It, that's warp speed. Oh, yeah. For the International yeah. Olympic warp speed. So um, it was it was huge. And and. Then what I, I began seeing, and then we're leading into kind of what I'm doing now, what I began seeing is, is that this wasn't, this wasn't really about running. You know, running was only the, the vehicle that was empowering women to have a sense of their own confidence and their own strength. And, you know, now we are seeing in the United States more women runners than men. And, and the reason is, is because they don't want to be Olympic athletes. They want to be empowered. This is the best part of their day. They feel like they've really gotten something accomplished, no matter how complicated, complex, or depressing the rest of their day could be. This is something that they can measure and feel significant and have ownership of. And it is phenomenal that something as simple as putting one foot in front of the other can do that. We are trying now to take this message around the world. If and the running has done it before, it can do it again. I mean, you're looking at what running, for instance, has done for women in, in Kenya and Ethiopia and really poor places, how the women have gone back and become esteemed in their villages, taken prize money back, inoculated kids, built schools, changed so many lives. You know, we, we can really take this in many, many other places. And what's happened, um, and I don't normally pay attention to these kinds of things, but but. 
my bib number in the Boston Marathon that the official tried to pull off was number 261. And for 45 years, I only thought of 261 as three digits. I didn't pay any attention to it whatsoever. And then suddenly, because of the Internet, people began emailing me and sending me pictures of themselves with 261 on their back, no matter what their number was on their front, because they said 261 makes them feel fearless. And I thought, isn't that nice? (laughs) Isn't that kind of a fun coincidence? And then they would ink it on their arms or their wrists or whatever. But then when they started sending me pictures of tattoos, I got really serious about it. I said, what does this mean? And what it means is that everybody in the world has been told at one time or the other, you're not good enough or you don't belong or you're the wrong color or you're not pretty enough or you're too fat or you're too slow or you don't count or you live on the wrong side of the tracks. You know, every person in every country has felt this way one way or the other. And suddenly when you run, you have a sense of fearlessness and you do it anyway. And you overcome that feeling. And I thought, holy Toledo, this is really very powerful. So I sat down with a group of girlfriends and said, what are we going to do? Are we going to create a business? Uh, And we decided to create a nonprofit. And it's called 261 Fearless. And it's designed to create community, non-judgmental clubs, organizations, network, uh, especially clubs of women who simply go out and run and walk together, maybe just once a week. And they put everything else aside and just kind of go out there and do this for themselves and for each other. And what happens is, is they get that sense of empowerment, usually from the group and usually from somebody helping them to take the first step. You know, I, I, I remember my dad started me running when I was 12 and that was my first step. But then I look back at that coach at Syracuse and he was the guy who just by being out there running with me, you know, meeting me in the rain and the cold every day was the person who helped me believe that I could overcome anything. And this is what we're going to be doing with 261 Fearless. And it's working great. It, it is happening all over the place. Um, because every, every woman in the world understands this feeling and wants to pass it on. Yeah, so I love that's, it. that's how, yeah, this is how it's evolved. And we're, we're very excited and we'd love everybody listening today to join us. You don't have to start a club. We'd love you to do that. But you can just be a friend and support the organization at 261fearless.org. This episode is brought to you by LifeSum. LifeSum is this great little app that I've been using to help me stick to my goals of leading a healthier and happier life. One of the things that it allows me to do is to track everything, whether it's my water intake, what I'm eating, or how much exercise I'm getting. I can see it all right there. And I get a score each day, a little like happy face or not happy face, depending on how I've been eating. This has been really great for me. And I can also add friends, which helps with the accountability because y'all, those cupcakes, I can't stay away from them. But sometimes a friend will like poke at me and tell me I need to chill out. Another great feature of the LifeSum app is their healthy recipes. They can recommend a healthy recipe that's super easy to make um, with not too many ingredients based on your healthy eating plan. And that will vary depending on what your goals are. So for my listeners, head to lifesum.com slash LTPF to learn more about the app and to sign up with a little bit of a a fun little discount. And maybe we can be friends on the app. That's lifesum.com slash LTPF. One of the things that you just said that really resonates with me and the purpose of my podcast is the, if you see it, you can be it thought. Mm-hmm. And yes, you know, for the podcast, one of the reasons that I, I started it was so that young women who were interested in working in sports could have possibility models, you know, women that they could see in all these different positions, doing all these different types of jobs and, you know, at all different stages of their careers. And, um, representation being so important and having people that you can look to and be like, Oh wait, maybe I could be that person. Because I remember being at UMass in the sport management program and not really knowing what that meant and not really knowing what I could be because everyone who came in to talk was a guy and we had some female professors. Don't get me wrong, but 
we didn't really meet many people out in the world working that were women. Um, and I think at, at some point I just kind of, uh, realized there still wasn't that spotlight on women in the industry. Um, so that's how this all came about. Yes. And, you know, I mean, so much has evolved um, where I don't know about you, but I, I really created my job. I mean, I went to journalism school and I could always write. And I, little did I understand that that writing was going to really become great when I was writing business proposals and pitching sponsors and then um, and then be, then into public relations and writing press releases and, and things like that to 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 get these events off the ground. And then it then that morphed into when that began happening. Then um, I wound up doing television commentary and right. suddenly in you know, all these other things. One thing leads to another, develops, develops. I mean, the future for women in sports right now, unbelievable. I mean, it used to be maybe you could be a news commentator and you could be an athlete, but that was about all sports you know, gave you. Right. But now, I mean, you could do anything in medicine, anything in law with representation or representing the big corporates. Right. I mean – I mean, just look at what's happening in Tampa. I mean, the whole <laughs> Iron Man concern is there. I yeah. mean, this is a massive, multi, multi-million global operation. And every single one of those events that they do around the world has an intricacy that involves even the smallest of characters in a town to be involved in helping clear the pathway, be, be a course marshal, run the press room. Work the work the banners, work the stands, order the toilets. You know everything. Right. There's millions of jobs and organization, but um, in just about every field, there's an opportunity for sports, and and the women are excelling in it. So it, it really is not the domain of men anymore at all. Um, any something like running, in particular, more women runners than men. Right. So uh, that's <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, there aren't, aren't more NFL football players that are women that are men, but, but, you know, the leagues are also going to expand exponentially too. I mean, the women's professional sports will grow. It oh, has yeah. to. And, and it's going to be a change in mindset, just like it was tough for people to accept women professional tennis players. Now they realize that women are playing a different kind of game that is sometimes much more fascinating, much more interesting to watch. It's just different. Same with women's basketball or women's soccer. I, for one, would prefer to watch women's soccer than men's because the men are always having these histrionics about, oh, I'm, I'm injured. <laughs> <laughs> they really well, are crybabies. playing clean. <laughs> you know, well, it's, it's the histrionics, you know, that, yeah. that, that, you know, don't interrupt the, the, the game, for God's sakes. Let, let us see the game in action and the, <laughs> and the women playing smoothly. I mean, it's beautiful. But, but it's different. It's not as powerful, no, but it's a different uh, different kind of sport. I just think that as we grow, all of these things are going to grow. The future is very, very, very exciting. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And your career has been really fun. Um, you know, you, you went to Syracuse, you got your degrees in communications, um, went on to become director of sports and PR at Avon, which led to that international series that you started. Um, and then you opened your own production production company. What was that like and about and what kind of led you in that direction? Well, when I left Avon, um, I, I also left Avon and, and began living half the time in New Zealand. And those are the days when you really needed to be in an office. You couldn't work virtually. I mean, I don't think email, email is just kind of being invented. And um, and, and that has transformed everything. I mean, we can work anywhere now, right. which is amazing. <laughs> Thank God for it. You know, we can work anywhere. I'll be, the bad news is, is it's relentless. <laughs> no, no, that means you, nobody ever turns you off. You, you can't, you can't, you have to just keep going. But um, I formed Atlanta Sports Promotions Inc. as a, is as actually at the time an event promotions company because I was organizing independently uh, running events around the world. But then it also then became also not a production company for television, but the overarching corporation of, of my own broadcasting. Because in those days, almost every race um, in the world had a TV component to it, even even small races. And well, they weren't small. I mean, let's say 10,000 people in like the Tulsa Run right. or in West Virginia or whatever. Each of those cities had 
their own local races. Now that has been largely corporatized. Um, but TV has become almost a thing of the past in terms of running. Very, very few events, except for the majors, um, are televised. The rest of the time people watch uh, snippets on uh, either live streaming um, or just on, their, on the Internet. Um, follow it that way. So oh. that was that was part of that. Yeah. I, and your ability to kind of bob and weave in that way is really telling of your adaptability. Um, and then you wrote your memoir, which I mean, you've written a few books. Um, I happen to have your memoir on my bookshelf somewhere. Um, <laughs> but how did how long did that take to write? And, and did you oh, have oh, like a process? He said, how? How long did it take you to write your book? And I said it was 60 years, you know. Oh, right. <laughs> it's really funny. I, you know, the first book, I, I, I write books out of inspiration. The first book I ever wrote was in 1998, and it was uh, called Running and Walking for Women Over 40. And it became one of those what I would call sleeper bestsellers, meaning it didn't like jump off the New York Times bestseller list, but it sold and still sells steadily for years and years and years and years. And I was inspired by that because my mother, um, who at the time was about 75, almost 80, said all these newspaper articles are telling us old women how to exercise, but they're not, they're telling us to exercise, but they're not telling us how to exercise. And I said, oh, mother, you've been watching me for for 40 years running. You put on your shoes and you go out and you walk. (laughs) And she said, well, how far do I walk? Where do I walk? What kind of shoes? Your mom sounds like me. (laughs) You know, and I wanted to say, have you not been paying attention? And I realized if my own mother felt like that, how many women in the world just think that they can't do that or it's not for them because nobody has told them how. So I sat down and wrote running and walking for women over 40. Well, the same thing happened with my memoir, Marathon Woman. And it was it was that I was getting really tired of hearing my own story told to me with with more bells and whistles and elaborations and confusions than you can ever imagine. And finally, the topper was once I was um, finished the Boston Marathon broadcast and I had to jump in a taxi really quick, get to the to Logan Airport to go um, to to another assignment someplace. And in the taxi. The taxi driver proceeded to tell me the story about the woman who ran the Boston Marathon the first time (laughs) and wearing bib numbers and how she was attacked by this official. Well, it was the most convoluted, ridiculous, total ridiculous story. (laughs) And my husband was sitting next to me and his hands was over his face. He was holding his sides to laughing. The tears were running down his face and he wouldn't let me interrupt him because he said, no, no, no. And I got out of the car and I said, why wouldn't you let me correct him? And he said, because... You have to learn a really valuable lesson. And he said that the world is not going to know the right story until you write it. And Mm. I said, well, fact is always more interesting than fiction anyway. And he said, no kidding. (laughs) Write your book. And so I sat my butt down and I started to write it. And as it turned out, it turned out to be really an important history of women's running and, and women's sports in general. Because I would start writing and I would say something like, um, and we set our watches to noon and then we were off. And I'm saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. These people ha- only have Timex Ironman watches and stopwatches, you know, the chronomixes and, and maybe an old-fashioned Casio or now Garmin's. You know, they have no idea what I'm talking about. So I had to explain the evolution of the, mm-hmm. of the, um, the running watch or the evolution of Gatorade or the evolution of Body Glide. You know, oh my God, I yeah. said my clothes are... Yeah, I said my clothes had gotten pretty gray from all the Vaseline. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Just why would why would her clothes get gray from Vaseline? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it became then a, you know a whole very very interesting history for me, and um, and it was wonderful to to you know to tell the story because because fact is always more interesting than fiction, and um, this it was became a very very good story for me, and it and. Um, it was a real relief to finally get it told. But honestly, to write a book, uh, and I'm sure you know this because you're a journalist also, it takes a hell of a lot of time out of your life. You just have to, you have to grind through it. And I say that the difference in writing a book um, and writing an article 
um, is the difference. It's like it's the difference between a marathon and like a you know a five k. You, you can bullshit your way through a five k, but you cannot bullshit your way through a marathon. Right. You 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 have to do the miles, and you you can stay up all night and write an article and get it done, but you can't stay up all night and write a book. You got to do the pages. Yeah. The pages are they're there. Um, and it's a lot of discipline and a lot of organization, but I figured, Hey, if I can run 40 marathons, I can write a book. Um, but it was hard. It wasn't easy, but it was, it was very satisfying. It was very satisfying. It was very satisfying to read. Um, I, I love that book and I, I do a purge of books every few years just because I don't have space. And that's one that I, I do not touch. Um, Oh, you're sweet. I well, hope you laughed a lot. Oh, of course I did. I mean, it's it's very much you and your what I believe from what I have seen on TV and and speaking with your PR reps and even just this conversation with you. It, it feels like it has a lot of authentic Kathy in it, um, which um, I think always makes the best books anyway. Right. Um, but the other thing I'm just realizing as I'm talking to you and this is going to sound really bizarre is so I've never run Boston because I have too much respect for it. Um, (laughs) and, um, but I do love expos and I am pretty sure I'm going to have to dig after we, we end this. And if I do, I'm going to put it on the post, but I might, I think I have a picture of you from an expo. Maybe the year of the bombing, um, because that I know. That, so 2013. Yeah. So I, I'm going to have to look I it. Like, I'm just getting flashes in my mind, it, which makes me think I do mm-hmm. have it somewhere. It means it's like in my Facebook albums. Um, <laughs> but, um, you, you know, you 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 are very much um, tuned in when it comes to the racing community and, and you go and speak a lot and you, you go to all of these different races. How do you find time for say you (laughs) and like, you know, downtime for yourself or, or with your husband? That's a real, real issue in our lives right now. Um, and last year I feel like it was the year of my life I lost, but it was also the year of my life I gained. The races and the expos aren't the thing that, um, that hammer me. It's, it's actually the speaking and that's mostly how I earn my living right now. So going, uh, hitting, hitting the road and doing 30 or 40 speeches a year, it's, it's, it's not the speaking. I love that. I love engaging with people. I love talking to them afterwards and going, you know, face to face, skin to skin with them. But um, it's the travel that just hammers me, especially with the security issues now and, you know, baggage or not baggage. Oh, my God. Um, and carrying <laughs> and mugging books around that. That is that is the problem. How do I disengage? Um, my downtime, actually, I'm really, really lucky is is when I run. So. If I go out and do a two hour run, it is like having a vacation for me. I know that sounds really weird, but mm-hmm. it is the time when I can completely zone out. Um, I'm alone. I always run alone, almost always run alone um, to meditate, to think of good ideas and just to kind of get rid of the stress. Yeah. Um, and then um, in terms of my husband, who is the great, great love of my life, um, mm-hmm. I try to carve out time and we make appointments you know, like tonight, you know, we have a date at six o'clock and Aww. we're going to the theater and then dinner afterwards. Yep. That gets in the calendar. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. Otherwise, I'm going to wind up, you know, doing emails or and re- answering some kids request for their term paper, which I really have a soft spot for. <laughs> That's really <laughs> you know, sweet. They all, they all well. The only thing that, that annoys me a little bit is that, that teachers are telling them that they need a primary source of information and to call the subject or email the subject and get an interview. Well, I don't know how realistic that is. I mean, you know, I can't I can't possibly uh, say give this much, the time I'm giving you today, for instance, to every student who calls. I mean, it's, re- it's ridiculous and you feel terrible. Um, but but I have figured out another system and, and it's working really well, which well, is good. good. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. Well, well, basically is to form a list of frequently asked questions mm-hmm. um, and give them a whole package of photographs and get that stuff all to them and piece of video maybe. And then they have everything they need for their project. Um, they don't really want to talk to you, but this, the parents, I mean, the teachers apparently have asked them to do that. And I don't, I don't understand why. That's really kind of you to do that. Oh, you got to do that. You've got to do that. You can't I think every kid in the world has been at one time or the other disappointed in somebody. Sure. Um, and you don't ever, you don't want to disappoint the kids. I mean, yeah. every kid in the world, every kid in the world deserves the opportunity to be told they can do something, that they can do anything, to give them every possible opportunity to to um, be inspired to move ahead, you know? Yeah. I, you just never, you just never know, you know, what, they're gonna, what they can do. Yeah. No, I agree. Just, and it's just very thoughtful of you. I, I think a lot of people um, uh, it don't take that time, you know, and it can be hard depending on the level, you know. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think that is a moral obligation, actually. Yeah. I actually start all my speeches with this, you know, that that was my dad who told me to start running and he was really conservative. You know, he really was. I think he just saw an insecure kid mm-hmm. and he said, come on, honey, if you ran a mile a day, you'd make the field hockey team in your high school. Oh, my God. You know, I was only 12 years old. I was skinny and a prepubescent. Um, and it was the mile a day that empowered me. And he said, life is to participate, not to spectate. And you can do this. I know you can do this. You can do anything. And I thought, wow. <laughs> and if you tell a kid that and they can really just get a little sense that they can do something. They will take that sense of empowerment and run with it. But you tell a kid that they're stupid or they're not worthwhile or no, I don't have time for you. They believe they're not. They're not worthwhile. Right. Um, I, I just think I just think it's a moral obligation. I don't have any kids of my own by choice um, be, because I feel like I have millions of them out there. And especially all those women who run, I feel I feel very maternal too. You know, I feel very yeah. much like I help them. That's a good feeling. Aww. I, 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 I do. I love, I, I know I'm like, you have to understand. I'm also very much just generally in awe right now that I'm even speaking with you. Um, but like my high school coach, my high school coach is going to die when I tell him. Um, <laughs> and like all my listeners are just probably laughing at how I'm fangirling. So it's fine. Um, it's okay. I'm all right with it. As long as you're all right with it. There's some, I'm all right with it. <laughs> there was something really funny that, um, that popped up in my research. Uh, and, and I don't, I guess I just never saw this when it hit the news. How on earth did Equinox get your DNA to make a perfume? Isn't that an astonishing campaign? It is. Honest bizarre. God, I mean, when they approached, well, when they in like the best me, way, they wanted well, yeah, it was it was about commitment. And, and I was well, I was very, very, very flattered that they thought I was sort of the embodiment of commitment. And also they struck a nerve with me because um, I love perfume. I mm. love I love scent. I mean, I can't see and I can't hear, but I can really smell. And I just <laughs> love perfume. And and so I even took a perfume course. I mean, that's my kind of, you know, oh, that's awesome. Fantasy job mm-hmm. <laughs> to be a perfumer. Anyway, um, uh, so so they said that we're going to do we, it's going to be called blood, sweat and tears. And what's going to be really cool is in this perfume. What we really want is your blood, your sweat and your tears. And I said, what? <laughs> and I said, I said, I can give you blood because about every two weeks I'll fall down and scrape my knee on a run someplace um, or an elbow or a hand or something. Uh, and I can give you sweat every afternoon. Just towel that off. But I said, you know what? I can't give you tears. And I said, um, you know, because they said, can we capture this on film? And I said, then if you capture tears on film, they're not going to be real, you know, because then it's phony. You know, I mean, my tears are are very private. And um, and they said, oh, dear, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And then they came back and they said, said, let's do a DNA swab because that would have all those ingredients. And so they, they, uh, they filmed this segment of me with the perfume bottle and, and um, interviewed about, you know, my sense of what I thought about commitment. And then they just did a DNA swab with a, like a buccal smear, like they do for mm-hmm. the athletes with a, with a Q-tip where they just rub the inside of your cheek and then they put it in the water or whatever they put it in. So I think it's, it's kind of like the shroud at Lourdes, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> you know, people, 
people will want to touch it or something. I thought, it, I think it's really very edgy, uh, a little bit creepy uh, and tre- <laughs> tremendously flattering, really <laughs> tremendously it's, flattering. It's only at the one in Boston, right? The Equinox That's at right. Downtown. Apparently the, they, the, they talked to the FDA and the FDA recommended that it only be in this one sample bottle and that, that the distribution of, a, of the scent um, be, be, um, emblematic of the commitment not it's an emblematic of her dna so it's yeah. not it's not going to be the real dna but it's but it's really quite wonderful actually. It is. Uh, i have no idea what the sense is going to be like i haven't tried it yet i, I think it's still uh you know I, I i don't know if it's going to be the same that's in that bottle mm-hmm. i was a little bit worried because the perfumer called me and she said yeah, i want to know what a marathon smells like and i said oh god i know you don't it smells like a marathon i am not so sure that people are going to want to wear this right. <laughs> you're like all the no. smells in a marathon are not necessarily nice right <laughs> but i i think it'll be something uh refreshing and and very crisp and very um producing a sense of optimism and excitement. I hope so. What's your favorite perfume? Um, Paris by Yves Saint Laurent. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my very favorite perfume. Um, but there are other things I like, you know, I like anything that's lavender, anything that is um, citrus, uh, light, uh, fresh, uh, not, not, not cloying and heavy, not musky, but gotcha. fresh. And Paris is very lively. Nice. Uh, there we go. What's your favorite perfume? So uh, my signature perfume is what I call it is um, La Vie Belle by Lancôme. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I love, love, love that perfume. Um, it's interesting. I like it on people, but it, but smelling it out of the bottle doesn't quite work because then so that that obviously it works with your body chemistry. Which is yeah, great. I get a lot of compliments on it, which either means I'm wearing way too much, or <laughs> um, or it works well with me. So. Um, I just love it. And it, it's one of those good little rituals in the morning, you know, and it get you ready. For it the is day. funny how scent, scent makes you feel uh, really, really very, very special. Yes. That's a really interesting project that Equinox is working on. I want to tell you about another interesting project though, because um, I was just down there in your area in Tampa mm-hmm. uh, with Humana um, who are, a major sponsor of the rock and roll series of events. And I'm going to be doing a series of rock and roll events this year um, all over the USA, um, especially those that are sponsored by Humana. And what, what we are trying to do with my presence in those races is to show people and this is the first time I ever realized I was, I was 70, <laughs> which was show people that actively aging really, really contributes to their long-term health, lifetime of good health. And that if they get out and move, not necessarily do marathon running, but just get out, take a walk every day, get fresh air, move, get their heart rate up a little bit, get a sweat up, um, that that their life is going to be so much more optimistic and forward-looking. And um, in the health, health uh, uh situations or uh, negative situations are much reduced by people who are active. We've proved that over and over again. But again, it's sort of like my old mom saying to me, well, how do I do that? How do I get started? Yeah. So what's going to be fun in these events is that we're going to have me running the five K's in these events. And we're going to ask people to come join Catherine's corral, you know, my group uh, into the starting area. And, and we, we all start together and, and have fun and I'll, uh, run and walk with these people and cheer them in. And, and it was very, very exciting in Tampa to be with, with some older people um, who had never pinned on a bib number before. And to see them in an event with people cheering for them mm-hmm. was awesome. And you know now they're going to stick with this and, and keep out there, keep doing it, keep healthy. So I'm excited about this prospect. This was something that came out of the Boston Marathon last April, that, that people. I was there to, to show, look at the great changes we've made in women's running and to pass the torch to that next generation. But also what people saw was a 70-year-old woman who had the health to do it. And there are plenty of 70-year-old men and women who, who do sports events. But I was the first woman to have done a marathon 50 years after she first did it. And, and that is testimony to really um, 
a lifetime of keeping active. I'm not going to say of great good health because I probably don't care, take care of myself as well as I should. I mean, I never get enough sleep. I travel too much, <laughs> but, but the running has been a lifesaver. And um, just that simple thing, just staying active has made such a huge difference. So uh, I'm forced now to admit that I'm 71 <laughs> and pretend like I uh, pretend like I'm not. And and just to say, gosh, what a surprise. I thought I was 25. <laughs> I mean, you look phenomenal, you know, and you definitely have um, more toned biceps than I do. <laughs> Uh, uh, I look, I was like looking at pictures on your website and I was like, God damn it. I need to start running again. <laughs> you know what? It's so easy. You know, you just get, <laughs> no. you park your shoes. Park, come on, Bobby Sue, park the shoes by the door and you look at them and say, uh, I'll just go out for 10 minutes. I mean, that's all. Just say that. Catherine, just go out for 10 minutes. Catherine Switzer is now going to be in my head telling me to go running. And this is going to be the no. best thing that's ever happened. <laughs> it's be great just go for 10 minutes bobby sue honestly just go for 10 minutes because you know when you get out there you're going to stay out there a lot longer than 10 minutes <laughs> i know so um if for the rock and roll series do they have those um with humana do they have those on the website right now for yeah um, they, all they, of those they should have those the dates the dates should be posted okay um i certainly have i have them on my website marathonwoman.com you go to my calendar but um, the first one is going to be in New Orleans, and I will be there on the weekend of March 3rd and 4th. Okay. So come and join us in New Orleans. And Tampa. Where's the Tampa date? Hold on. Are I'll you actually coming date. to Tampa? Yes. Yeah, I think I am. Yes. We, well, we're going to get together at least for a coffee, maybe a drink. Um, Tampa, Tampa, Tampa. Oh, this is so exciting for my life. Yeah. I'm going to roll. I feel like Tampa doesn't usually have a rock and roll. It was a smaller event. Um, You know what? It's not on this calendar. I might be there anyway. It might be a small event. Anyway, we'll get together. We'll get together. We'll make it happen. Um, Where can everybody follow you uh, on the interwebs? Well, you just gave your website. So, uh, on Twitter, Instagram, do you do all of those things? I know you do Twitter. All of those things, you know, at Catherine Switzer, at KV Switzer, Marathon Woman, they're all there. But I think one of the coolest things they should do is absolutely go to 261fearless.org um, and at 261fearless then and follow us there too. Yes, that would be fantastic. Um, I know I will have links to all of those uh, on the website, on my website, and then... Um, and I'm obviously following them all. So if I'm doing it, all of my listeners should do it. They know this. Um, and, you know, I just really want to thank you for taking the time to to speak with me and, and to tell some of your stories. And I know that there are so many more. Um, but, you know, we have you have a busy day, I'm sure, ahead of you. And at some point I will have to sleep. So it's best that we cut it on the shorter end. Um, so I want to thank you. I, it's it actually really means a lot to me personally that you've taken that time. Well, Bobby Sue, it's great for me to um, virtually meet you. I look forward to doing it in person. And thank you, thank you, and thank you for what you're doing by inspiring people with this wonderful podcast. I think that um, when people hear from women like you, they realize, hey, you know, I can do anything, and um, and they go out and do it. So thanks for being the inspiration, also. Thank you so much to Catherine for taking the time to speak to me. I still can't believe it even happened. I'll tell you all a quick story. The day after that interview happened, I mean, I was still in the cloud. I called my high school coach and I I thought he was going to have a heart attack on the phone. Um, So really inspiring woman. And I'm looking forward to meeting her in person in the near future. Please make sure you are subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com. I will read your review on the air. I love getting feedback, good or bad. So please let me know how to get better. 
You can also follow us on all of the social media. We are trying to get better at engaging on there. So the podcast is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at LTPF pod. And then you can follow my personal Twitter at Bobby Sue, B-O-B-B-I-S-U-E. The website is ltpfpod.com. And I hope you all have an amazing week. This is a Jim Fannin Show Quick Fix on Radio Influence. There's probably a dozen people in your business that are going to make your business, especially if you're a small business owner. There may be fewer than that. In these arenas, you need a blueprint for your overall life. That's definite. Nothing great happens uh, without a blueprint. But you also need a blueprint for your relationships in your business. What people are mandatory for your business to survive and thrive? And are you developing those relationships? You may have a business partner. Are you on the same page? Do you have a plan? And does that inner circle business team of yours, are you really on the same page? And is today one three sixty fifth of reaching your annual goals? But that team needs to bond. And I think because of this ferocious competition with margins being thinner, you need to circle the wagons even more today than ever before. The Jim Fannin Show can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.